Chapter 24 of the Submarine Boys Lightning Cruise. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Submarine Boys Lightning Cruise by Victor G. Durham. Chapter 24 Conclusion Within two hours, John C. Rhines had his head up once more. He felt as though the battle had been already won. There was nothing to fear from Farnham pushing the situation that had been created against the owner of the Thor, for Farnham had promised. It was strange that John Rhines, who had no regard for the moral value of his own given word, felt certain that Jacob Farnham would not break a promise. Rhines even telephoned for the reporters, and when they came, gave out an interview in which he stated that Mr. Farnham was satisfied that no blame over the torpedo incident could be attached to the owner of the Thor. Farnham, when questioned by the same reporters, declared that he had nothing to say. That night, Rhines was almost cheerful. He dined in the public dining room of the hotel with his wife and daughter, and both appeared to be wholly proud of the man. One thing, however, worried Rhines a good deal. Congressman Sims did not come near him again. Later in the evening, Rhines sought the congressman, though wholly in vain. Rhines breakfasted with his family the next morning in their rooms, so he was still behind his private doors when a summons reached him to go to the wharf and take the launch to the Oakland. "'What can it mean, John?' demanded his wife. "'If they want you as a witness before the investigation, you'll be able to clear yourself quickly,' predicted Helen." I'll soon find out why I'm wanted, declared Rhines jauntily. In fact, he was almost cheerful as he boarded the launch at the wharf. Rhines was at least self-possessed when he was shown into a cabin where Captain McGowan was seated at a desk. Oh, good morning, Mr. Rhines, was the greeting of the President of the Naval Board, as he rose. My business will take but a very few moments. I have received definite orders from the Navy Department by wire this morning. Here is a copy of the telegram. Rhines took the message and read, Inform John C. Rhines that the department will give no further consideration this year to the purchase of any boats from the Rhines Submarine Company. What does this mean? demanded Rhines, paling, then flushing with anger. Just what it says, replied Captain McGowan coolly. There has been some underhanded work here, began the old man wrathfully. "'None in the Navy Department, at all events,' replied McGowan coolly. "'I will not detain you longer, Mr. Rhines. Good morning.' Captain McGowan, bowing, opened the door. A Marine sentry stood on post just outside. There was no use in making a row. John C. Rhines stepped out like one in a daze, and remained so until he reached the wharf and stepped ashore. To the railway station went Rhines. He was ruined.' The order from Washington meant that all his capital had been expended on boats that could not be sold. There might be a chance with foreign governments, but creditors would step in and seize the Rhine's shipyards before a good trade could be made abroad. At the station, Rhine's counted the money he had about him. At a bank in another city was a thousand dollars or so more. Rhine's took the train and was borne away. His wife and daughter... The former had a small private fortune of her own. Wife and daughter would not starve. So the coward ran away. 
That same forenoon, Farnham and his submarine boys were summoned to police headquarters. There they were confronted with a rather pretty, though almost poorly dressed girl. Is this the young woman whom you rescued at a street corner, and whom you were escorting when attacked by a gang of rowdies? asked Chief Ward. I don't know, smiled F. The young woman I was walking with had on a veil. Oh, that's all right, laughed the police chief. This young woman is Catherine Pitney. She has told me the whole story, and I am satisfied that she has told me everything honestly. Miss Pitney is not a prisoner. She has made a little mistake in becoming engaged to the wrong sort of fellow, the Tom from whom you tried to defend her. Now it seems that Tom, which isn't his name, had persuaded her to help him in playing a joke as he explained it to her. So Miss Pitney was foolish enough to agree. She is wholly sorry, now she knows that it was a crime, not a joke in which she helped. And Tom has received his walking papers, so far as Miss Pitney is concerned. But I beg you'll forgive me, Mr. Summers, spoke up the girl anxiously. I honestly believed it was a joke that I was helping in. As soon as Mr. Ward found me, I told him the whole truth about the matter. You certainly did, Miss Pitney, confirmed the chief. Why, I haven't anything to forgive, laughed F. It was a joke, the way it turned out. Chief Ward escorted Miss Pitney from the room, then returned to explain. That's a wholly good girl, but her fancy was too easily won by the fellow Tom. She knows better now, and will have to know a whole lot more about the next man she allows to capture her affections. Now, I have another pair to show you. They're in cells. Come downstairs, please. Through a corridor underneath, the chief led his visitors, halting at last before a barred door of iron. Look through and see who it is, smiled the police chief. Why, that's Walter C. Hodges, who sent us off on a pleasure trip in that doctored automobile, exclaimed Jack. Yes, you're right, sighed the prisoner. I've been cornered, and I've admitted it. But that fellow's daughter, asked Jack, as the chief led them away. Hodges hasn't any daughter, replied Chief Ward. We found the young woman, but we let her go. She is an idle, vain young woman. Hodges told her the same old story, a joke he was playing, and persuaded the young woman to go along and pretend to be his daughter. In payment, he bought her the fine clothes she was wearing when you saw her. And now, here's someone you may like to see here. For a moment or two, not a word was uttered as the submarine people found themselves gazing between bars at Fred Radwin. Radwin did not look depressed, but on the contrary, jaunty and defiant. He's the one I'm best pleased of all to have, chuckled Chief Ward. The four ruffians who attacked you boys, and held two of you in that deserted house before Benson led our party to the place, have confessed that they were acting for Radwin. And Hodges has confessed, too, that Radwin employed him, and that, between them, they put the doctored axle in the auto. While Chief Ward was speaking, Fred Radwin turned pale. You didn't know all this until just this moment, did you, Radwin? smiled the chief. Oh, you needn't think you can down me too easily, snarled the prisoner. I have money to fight with. I know, nodded Ward. You have a little over $20,000, Radwin. I also know where the money is. An attorney acting for the chauffeur that was hurt so badly in the automobile smash-up has already started in to attach that money in a suit for damages by the chauffeur. It is time to turn from too disagreeable a picture. 
The four roughs first hired by Fred Radwin were sent to the penitentiary for a year each. Hodges, in consideration of furnishing useful state's evidence, was sentenced to the penitentiary for two years and a half for his share in the automobile plot. Radwin, for conspiracy and setting on the roughs, was sentenced to three years in the penitentiary. For his part in the automobile affair, five years more were added. It will be a long time yet ere Radwin will breathe the air as a free man. John C. Rhines vanished completely. True, one returned traveler reported having seen Rhines at Nice, performing paltry services for American tourists in return for paltry tips. Mrs. Rhines and her daughter, having decided to make the best of matters, are now living quietly and happily in a western town. They believe John C. to be dead. The mystery of that torpedo has never been officially cleared. In naval circles, however, there is no doubt whatever felt as to the guilt of Rhines and Radwin, but it is also felt that both have been suitably punished for their dastardly conduct. The three Rhines torpedo boats were seized under court orders and sold to satisfy the claims of creditors of the Rhines Company. The chauffeur recovered $20,000 damages through the attachment of Radwin's funds and the subsequent civil suit. Besides which, after a few months, the chauffeur had practically recovered from his painful injuries. David Pollard was out of hospital in three weeks. In twice that length of time, he felt as well as ever. Later on, the Pollard Submarine Boat Company received from the United States government orders for 18 torpedo boats in all the Benson and Hastings included. One of the new ones under this order was named the Summers. The Navy has accepted all three names, and the boats are now known in the service by these names. Later on, the fortunes of the three submarine boys were materially increased by these sales. One of the first pleasures experienced by David Pollard, after his discharge from hospital, was that of joining the rest of the Farnham party in dining with the members of the Naval Board and the gunboat's officers in the mess room of the Oakland. In the course of a little speech after dinner, Captain McGowan referred in glowing terms to the splendid work of the submarine boys on that lightning cruise and their success in being first to reach the derelict and torpedo it. The president of the board was followed by Lieutenant Danvers, who, among other things, said, the performances of Captain Benson and of his brother officers on the Pollard boats have, indeed, been wonderful. Wonderful may not be quite the word, but at this moment I am so carried away with enthusiasm that I cannot cruise about for mere words. Laughter and applause. The other day, a naval comrade, in talking with me about the performances of Jack Benson and his friends, told me he considered them to be wizards of the deep. More applause. But I took exception to my comrade's well-meant remarks. A wizard, as we understand one nowadays, is a mere pretender, a sleight-of-hand man, a jack-at-cards. I would offer a more fitting title, and in all sincerity, when I allude to Jack Benson, Hal Hastings, and F. Summers as the young kings of the deep. Tremendous applause. Here we will leave the submarine boys briefly we shall come upon them again in their next succeeding adventures, adventures that make a fitting climax in the next volume, which will be entitled The Submarine Boys for the Flag, or Deeding Their Lives to Uncle Sam. End of chapter 24 
End of The Submarine Boys Lightning Cruise by Victor G. Durham.